welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in or maybe for coming back to this show. It's been so many uh, moons, so many days, so many weeks that you haven't heard from me, that I haven't been able to do this podcast, and I'm very, very, very excited to be able to uh, bring it to you once more. Uh, I didn't really give much explanation, and I certainly didn't give any advanced warning, and I do apologize for that, but uh, there were some personal things going on that made it difficult for me to do this uh, show and um you know, it's it's always kind of a fine line how much information I really want to give out publicly about what's going on. And frankly, I didn't think it was all that relevant. And to be honest with you, I didn't think it was going to take so long. So it's been a couple of months and I do apologize, but I'm so grateful that you've come back to the show. And I'm very happy to be able to say that uh, uh, there's a lot more content to come in the very, very near future. Now, that being said, I want to just give a quick disclaimer before we jump into the conversation this week. And that has to do with the audio quality. If you're listening to this program and you're like, what the hell? How come the audio sucks? Blame Microsoft for what they have done in destroying Skype and making my life exponentially harder when it comes to recording podcasts. Uh, I don't know what the hell happened, but Skype is now a raging dumpster fire. I'm not sure I can continue using it to record podcasts, but I don't have a very good option at this very moment, so we're going to go with it and see what happens. So I apologize in advance if there's any... um, you know, blips and bleeps, and if there's uh, static and, you know, whatever, I'll do my best to keep it as clean as possible. But uh, you have my word that I'm I'm trying, and I am going to find a solution, and it is going to work. Uh, but with that, uh, with that said, I want to turn to my guest today. He is a returning guest. He is, dare I say, a friend of the show, and certainly, as uh, we all know, an iconoclast on the pages of Counterpunch quite regularly. He is uh, well known as uh, as an author of uh, two important books about Barack Obama. He is a regular contributor at Counterpunch, Paul Street. Paul, welcome back to CP Radio. Hey, thanks very much. So, uh, let's see. Since the last time we spoke, uh, seemingly a meteor has crashed into the planet. Uh, everybody has uh, turned into a raving lunatic, and uh, there's really not a whole lot that we can that we can say politically that doesn't revolve around Trump and Russia. At least anything else is mostly verboten these days. So, Paul, I do want to talk about RussiaGate. I want to talk about some of your recent pieces, uh, which. You know, these recent pieces of yours are, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of addressing some of these issues, particularly how we should be talking about Russiagate or if we should be talking about it at all. The relevance of all of this. Uh, Can you speak a little bit to whether you think Russiagate matters and any interactions or confrontations or whatever that you've had with the, you know, for lack of a better word, competing camps and competing perspectives around Russia Gate. I think there's a lot to be understood and learned about the left in the United States in examining the reaction to and the ramifications of Russia Gate. What do you think? Huh. Well, you know, um, yeah, it should be talked about because it's become a huge sort of defining central factor in American political life over, like you said, the last few months. I like to um, think I've shown some predictive ability writing and thinking about American politics in the last decade or so. 
certainly the Obama phenomenon more. Uh, one thing I never would have predicted, I never had any idea, uh, it just didn't enter my mind, that, that this type of thing could happen, that this narrative would happen. First of all, I never thought Hillary Clinton was going to lose. And I didn't know that almost overnight, uh, that after the loss, the Democrats and the media allies were going to roll out this incredibly powerful Russian narrative and just hit on it, news cycle after news cycle after news cycle again and again, you know, broken up occasionally by things like uh, potential wars with North Korea and, and uh, mass shooting, which we have on a regularly scheduled basis in this country now. Uh, and... and um, and it really is quite an amazing kind of development, a sort of comeback of uh, neo-McCarthyism, a sort of comeback of everyone looking under their beds for Russians all the time. I mean, I thought when the Cold War was over that we were done with that, and silly me. Um, you know, I, I, I tend towards being pretty skeptical uh, about the notion that Russia, to say the least, that Russia had some sort of major authoritarian intervention in our political process, and that you know they overthrew our democracy, and you described me as an iconoclast, a left iconoclast. Well, I mean, I guess that's right. I mean, what democracy was there in the first place to subvert? What is this great popular sovereignty system that the Russians allegedly came in and uh, and you know un undid? I mean, what 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 are they talking about? We have reams of research and observation over the last three, four decades showing that corporate America, our own homegrown oligarchy, forget Russia, gets pretty much anything it ever wants from American policymakers and to the rest of the population, the, the, the progressive left-leaning, center-left majority people almost never get what they want. Russia didn't do that. Russia didn't invent that. Uh, uh, um, you know, Russian interference was nothing compared to that of, uh, of our own homegrown oligarchy. We regularly and routinely intervene in other nations' elections around the world, and we have for, uh, you know, and we have for decades, uh, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the amount of Russian intervention in the American political process is, is a tiny bucket compared to American intervention. In other, in the, there was a piece in the New York Times just last week that was, that was titled, Russia isn't the only one meddling in elections. We do it, too. And it went on and on with numerous examples of American intervention in other elections. Of course, Russia tried to have some say. I'm not one of these people who says that Russia had no involvement in the 2016 election. Oh, of course it did. It had all kinds of realpolitik vested national interest in Hillary Clinton not winning. Hillary Clinton was an open, uh, uh, on the record, uh, uh, anti-Russian, NATO-expanding, Eastern European uh, interventionist warmonger who talked as if she was practically frothing over the possibility of a world war three with Russia. Of course Russia didn't want her involved. So of course there was some didn't want her in the White House. And so of course there was some uh, Russian uh, attempts to influence the electoral process, just like all kinds of countries involved in other countries are involved in other countries' political process. Yes, there were some uh, trolls, there were some Facebook ads bought, there were some outreach perhaps to to sort of incompetent uh, uh, doofuses within the uh, within the um, uh, you know some sort of ridiculous people within the Trump campaign. That doesn't surprise me. At all, it never surprises me to find out that other countries want to have some influence in the political process of the world's only super.
power, you know, which has 800 military bases spread over 80 countries, which accounts for 40 percent of global military spending. You know, it's the only global reach nation in the world. I've often thought other countries ought to have a vote in American presidential elections because the United States strides across the planet, you know, with just, just unimaginable power unlike a, a global reach power unlike that exercised by any nation ever in history so yeah there was some russian involvement but how significant compared to uh you know american involvement in other nations elections compared to the corporate and the financial elites involvement in the american elections republican vote suppression just in the in key swing states like wisconsin pennsylvania ohio michigan um was probably a much bigger uh, factor in the uh, uh, in the outcome of the 2016 election. And I'm referring to the, the voter suppression, the racist, partisan voter suppression carried out by uh, Republican state governments, you know, in, in across the country, but particularly of, of particular significance in the in the upper Midwest and these swing states. So you know. Uh, I don't like Russia being involved in American elections. I'm not. I'm not a fan of, of Putin. I'm not a fan of the Russian oligarchy. I'm not a Putinist. I, I don't deny that Russia had some some involvement, but there seems to be a lack of perspective and context um, that that makes this all kind of silly. And of course, it becomes part of the hate Russia narrative. It becomes part of the foreign policy agenda. You know, we got to go back and get Russia because they did nasty things to us. It's kind of dangerous. It becomes part of this new McCarthyism that. That, that can be used in very dangerous ways to suppress dissent in this own country. I mean, every time you start saying, as I'm hearing a lot from people who call themselves liberals and progressives, aligning themselves with the FBI and the CIA in this narrative that dissent in this country and conflict in this country is a result of outside interference. What, does it have anything to do with the, 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 the systems of racial and class oppression within this country? No, the Russians did it. That's an incredibly dangerous narrative. And it's also dangerous on a global stage to demonize Russia and claim that Russia now is some sort of masterful, conspiratorial, all-powerful, uh, 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 returned great power that is undermining our political process. It feeds a narrative that could lead to uh, uh, a military conflict, maybe even a thermonuclear conflict with Russia. So I'm, you know, pretty much thumbs down on on the whole on the Russia Gate narrative that's that's pushed out there by MSNBC, and CNN, and Washington Post, New York Times. Call me an iconoclast. Well, you are an iconoclast, but uh, I mainly did that because you told me to say it, and I do what people tell me to. Uh, but so here's the thing, Paul. Um, I agree with you to a large extent on a number of the points that you made. Certainly the danger of going overboard with this narrative. Certainly the absurd and utterly idiotic idea that Russia's involvement in U.S. elections is not only that not only that it was you know the deciding factor but more importantly that it's some kind of you know absolutely outrageous criminal action where the united states as you pointed out does it routinely all over the world and has been for many decades and is doing it right now as we speak in places like Venezuela and elsewhere where they are deliberately trying to sabotage elections, deliberately trying to affect regime change by hook or by crook. So I'm 
I'm certainly not one who has completely dispensed with the idea of keeping the Russia issue in perspective. At the same time, I do think that there's a lot to be learned from what we now are, well, what we now know and what we're continuing to learn about what happened uh, really not only in the 2016 election, because I don't particularly care so much about the election itself. Obviously, we got Trump and obviously we could have a long running conversation about whether Hillary or Trump is a lesser evil. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't argue that Trump is a lesser evil, but, you know, people do argue about that still. I think it's sort of irrelevant at this point. But what I'm interested in and and, and the aspect of the story that the media, for the most part, uh, doesn't do a good job of covering is the utilization of social media as a weapon in a broader full spectrum kind of conflict. The United States has been doing that, perfected it. I remember uh, reporting about uh, uh, the United States uh, utilizing software that allowed them to create sock puppets all over Twitter for the purposes of pushing disinformation in Libya in 2011. That's a fact. That was reported in major publications. And we know about it. And the United States did it. We could point to many other examples. But now we have other players in this game and they're using social media and using discourse and the manipulation of discourse, particularly, at least from my perspective, with regard to far right politics and fanning the flames of, of, of fascist movements and fascist organizations and a fascist politics. That, I think, is also incredibly dangerous. So on the one hand, the sort of neo-McCarthyite attack Russia attack Russia narrative is exceedingly dangerous. On the other hand, totally ignoring the fanning of the flames of the far right using social media and using uh, uh, international media apparatus, I think that's also very dangerous. And so I kind of tend to get attacked from both sides, which is really kind of how I like it. <laughs> uh, yeah, listen, uh, uh, I, I, I am with you on... Uh... In, um, in my utter and total repudiation of those kinds of voices that you hear, that that I sort of secretly kind of wonder, you know, what 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 is their funding? You know, who's actually behind these kinds of narratives that you hear from people like Caitlin Johnston and others that uh, you know some sort of left, right, red, brown, you know, uh, 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 alliance against the liberal establishment, and and sort of opening, trying trying to push open this door of left tolerance for people who are essentially white supremacists uh, and neo-Nazis and, you know, just a sort of truly vicious kind of people and, and suspensive, you know, and, 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 and propagating this kind of notion that uh, they're really not all that bad, you know, some of these white... No, they are. They're, they're absolutely horrific and it's profoundly cynical for any nation state. I, I don't care uh, how aggrieved they may uh, feel they, that they legitimately their grievance against the United States might be. Uh, I mean, my God, at least the Soviet Union back in, in their heyday, and they, they, there was sort of a pro-Soviet Communist Party in this country. The American Communist Party, uh, you know, actually helped build the CIO and helped, uh, you know, uh, defend the Scottsboro Boys, you know, during the 1930s and helped the working class, uh, uh, you know, form militant unions and, and protest against racism and, and form popular fronts against international fascism. So, you know, uh, it's important to factor in and, and not pretend that this, the, the Putin forces, whatever role they might be playing, uh, are, are have nothing ideologically to do 
with the old with the old Russia with with the with the Soviet Russia. And I'm I'm not a huge fan of the American Communist Party, but the American Communist Party did some good things and was aligned on a progressive side of many issues. At least they were certain during certain phases of their party's development. And anyone who's who's confusing that kind of history, you know, with this kind of noxious purveyance of right wing ideology and, and and all of that is uh is just an idiot as far as I'm concerned. I think that I think that you're right, Paul. But um, you know, the reason I bring it up, and I don't want to dwell on the point too much, but the reason I bring it up is because I feel that we're at a very critical moment in 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 our political history, both in this country and in you know, quote unquote, the West or the global North or whatever you want to call it. Because obviously, we see the far right in uh, ascendance in many places. Certainly, the United States is not the only one. Obviously, Britain, France, uh, uh, Eastern Europe, many other places as well. Even in Germany, you're seeing that with an openly fascist party that is now uh, seated in the German parliament and is one of the, I think it's the third most popular party now. That's the uh, so-called alternative for Germany, the alternative for Deutschland. And so I think that it's incredibly dangerous, our our moment right now. And so when I see, uh, you know, things like, uh, you know, alternative media outlets that are maybe tangentially, though not directly connected to Russia or even to Russia's, you know, political line, it does start to make me wonder about the cumulative effect of all of these things. You see the discourse shifting in very significant ways. And I, I, you know, I give the Russians credit. They've, they've managed to capitalize on an aspect of, uh, you know, information war that they have in many ways gone far ahead of the United States in that regard. And I think that that is the reason you see this hysteria in Washington and the hysteria in the uh, corporate media is because I think they've now woken up to the fact that the United States is not an unchallenged power anymore in the cyber realm, in the information realm, that RT and Sputnik and the alternative media sites that the Russians are backing and all of these various networks, that they are having an impact, that they did impact the election, at least in terms of the way that people think, though perhaps not in a quantifiable way. Well, and of course, they can have an impact because of the um, fecklessness of the American left and sort of helps the non-existence of it in the sort of um, role. Um, some of that is actually the fault of actual leftists, and much of it is not. And, and the role of the um, Democratic Party, which is not unlike the role of the Social Democrats in, in Europe in sort of kowtowing to the neoliberal establishment and playing along with the upper distribution of wealth and playing along with with uh, a top-down uh, 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 corporate model of globalization and the rollback of union power and the destruction of unions and, and you know, the, the, the general sort of top-down bipartisan assault on the um, social democratic and New Deal welfare state sort of open space for a lot of exploitation uh, of middle class, working class, white nationalist uh, sort of anger. It's kind of like uh, blood and soil white nationalism is the only form of collectivity uh, left to people anymore with sort of the the evisceration of the apparently old-fashioned uh, uh, working-class struggle um, that the left used to be able to fight both in Europe and in America. So I, mean, I, I don't, you know, there's, there's a soil on which uh, 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 outsiders can sort of exploit uh, and then sort of plug in the kind of uh, isolationist tendencies that used to 
exist uh, on the right in this country, and we're still sort of doing interesting kinds of ways. I don't know if that's really a follow-up to what you were saying or not, but I mean, I don't, I don't know that they could, uh, they could get away with any of this without that sort of uh, uh, deeper underlying context in the first place. And of course, on, on, on the other hand, this is sort of blowback, right? I mean, we sort of pioneer this kind of stuff. We, we sort of subsidize and create this worldwide web in the social media and, uh, and, 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 and expect it not to come back and bite us in the ass. Well, it just doesn't work like that. It, obviously, it has. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the, the the weapons of war can always be turned on on those that forged them, and uh, certainly that's true with Hillary Clinton. Remember, it was Hillary Clinton that coined the term fake news, not Trump. But once fake news was out there as a concept, Trump essentially weaponized it. I, I was talking about that on this show probably a year or more ago, the weaponization of the very idea of fake news. So certainly social media and the internet is also weaponized and the United States is no longer the only country that is able to do that. But I want to return to those comments that you made at the opening, Paul, uh, about kind of, you know, this, this, uh, you know, this, this recognition that, yeah, okay, Russia may have been involved in some way, whatever that is, whether it was just in terms of pushing narratives or whether there was some kind of direct meddling or what have you. But the reason I'm returning to that is because I've noticed a very interesting progression that very few people want to talk about. And that is the progression of the, you know, and I use this word semi-ironically, the denialists, right? Those those who said Russiagate is nothing. There's no there's nothing to this story, absolutely no evidence, et cetera, et cetera. Caitlin Johnstone, you mentioned already, she's a good example of the people who have spent the last year telling you, don't pay attention, that nothing happened. This is totally made up by the Democrats to cover for Hillary's disastrous defeat, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now we have a lot more information that's come out since then, and I've noticed a sea change in, in the very language that those type of people are using. They're no longer saying there's nothing. They're now saying, well, it wasn't that significant. What? Oh, okay, so they bought some advertisements. They spent a couple of million dollars. It's nothing by comparison to Hillary and Trump, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, there's been a shift in their, in their position, but they're are not acknowledging that shift. And I think that that's because of a lot of the information that's come out. And the reason I think that's important is because I think we're only at the very beginning, just the very tip of the iceberg and seeing how much information there is going to be. I think there's a lot more coming. And I think that Mueller is very slowly and very methodically working his way up the ladder. And there's so much more information we're yet to hear about. Oh, no, I mean, I think that's absolutely right, and that's one of the things that makes talking about this issue as difficult as it is. I mean, this isn't like, you know, covering a football game where you, you actually can look at the scoreboard. You can actually report what's going on. I mean, you don't know how much this guy's holding on to. And, you know, Robert Mueller is the real deal. He, he, he's, he's, he's not screwing around. And, uh, and you never know what, 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 what other shoe's going to drop and what new information is going to come out. And it makes, it, it makes one very sort of, uh, well, you're looking over your shoulder all the time, making any definite assertions about this story. Uh, because, frankly, other, other people have a lot more power over information than, than you or me are just waiting to drop another bomb from one news cycle to the next. Uh, someone, somebody's going to turn, you know, uh, 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 they're waiting for the right point in the news cycle to let stuff out. Who knows? So yeah, I mean, I'm you know, I, I think that's right, and that's why you are hearing a different uh, a different tune. I never thought that complete denialism made any sense to me because I think it, for me it just struck me as how come we can't talk about uh, 
what am I trying to say here? How, how come we can't talk about some of the rational national realpolitik self-interest Russia would have had for intervening in the election? Of course, uh, of course, they didn't want Hillary Clinton in, given her record on Eastern Europe and her record on Russia and her statements about Putin and her and her long-standing aggressive support of what of, of of you know ever eastward NATO expansion. Of course, they didn't want her, and, and of course, and there is a relatively open political process. In the United States, I mean, kind of like a, 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 a whole bunch of Saudis really didn't have a whole, didn't have all that difficult a time figuring out how to fly airplanes into buildings. Well, it's a hell of a lot easier uh, to try to, to, to become involved in the political process in the United States. I mean, of course, they had some involvement. You know, who's getting over here? I say that I say that with these qualifications, though. That if, if it wasn't for this corporate takeover of the Democratic Party, this top-down assault on it, the evisceration of the left, the destruction. Uh, of democracy in this country, I don't know how far it could get. Right, we're, we're, our, our, our lack of safeguards, in part, are sort of socio-political and, and, and have to do with all of that too. No doubt, and and I in no way intend to minimize at all the fact that. None of this would be possible were it not for the complete and utter bankruptcy and total degeneracy of the Democratic Party, of the neoliberal consensus that runs the Democratic Party, of the corporate parasites that, you know, infest the intestines of the Democratic Party and so forth. Uh, so, I mean, that really is, I think, the, the, the crux of the story in the sense that none of this would have been possible were it not for that. But... As well, let me, let me add to that. Let me add to that. And on top of sort of the neoliberal infestation and just the absolute nothingness of the Clinton-Obamanite dismal dollar-drenched Democratic Party, there's also just a lot of absurd practical mistakes during the 2016 campaign. We would not be talking about Russia's hijack of American democracy if Hillary Clinton had just had the common sense uh, uh, to run a decent campaign in these key swing states, these upper Midwestern states. She didn't set foot once in, uh, in Wisconsin after the Democratic National Convention. They just stupidly assumed that they could just talk about how, how idiotic Donald Trump was and that, and that he would have no backing and that, they, and, that, and that they could sort of coast with their data, with their addiction to a, uh, a database campaign, that they could just coast the victory. They ran an absolutely horrible campaign. We wouldn't be talking about how Russia took over democracy if they'd just done, our, done their job as candidates. Uh, and also... If the corporate media hadn't provided five billion dollars worth of just absolutely free media uh, attention to uh, to Donald Trump in 2015 and 2016, and these sort of contingent factors, you know, these 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 mistakes, these events that occurred, matter too. No, no doubt about it, absolutely. But again, I think that the reason why the reason why I wanted to start out with all of that is because I do want to transition um, the conversation. Away from Russia Gate or whatever you want to call it, and, and and all of the myriad issues associated with that, and talk a little bit about the uh, you know uh, Lord Trumpelstiltskin in the White House now, because you know were it not for all of the factors that we just laid out, everything from Russia's involvement to Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party, and you know the the nature of the Electoral College and cumulative effects of forty years of neoliberalism, and I could go on and on listing a thousand other reasons why Trump is in the White House. The reality is that he is. And 
you did a great service for me personally in in reading uh, in reading Wolf's book uh, Fire and Fury, his uh, chronicling of uh, Trump's what is it first nine months or however long he was there at the White House, uh, reporting on what was happening, and uh, you saved me the trouble of having to read it myself. So I want to ask you. Uh, in light of everything that we know about how Trump got to, into the White House, reading Wolf's book, what that he chronicled in your mind really sticks out? What really matters as far as, you know, to the day-to-day lives of people in the United States and people around the world? Because from the excerpts that I read and in reading some of your summaries and those from other people, I mean, it's almost... embarrassing is not even a strong enough word. It's almost incomprehensible, the stupidity of the president, right? I mean, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, the, the, I want to add one factor. I'm sorry. The, The Russia didn't do Russia did not make Hillary Clinton and the democratic national committee intervene in the, in the, in the primaries. Uh, uh, to stop the one candidate, Bernie Sanders, who probably actually had a chance in the Democratic Party of defeating Donald Trump in the uh, in the 2016 election, but that's that's enough on that. Yeah, um, it, it, it's if you thought if you thought Trump was an idiot already, and he gave us numerous reasons to do so, on, on top of being a complete abject, total, amoral, malignant narcissist of just like epic proportions. You sort of already knew that. You read this book by Wolf, and you find out it's even worse than you ever could have imagined. And you find out, amazingly enough, that that's pretty much the opinion of just about everybody who has to handle him, who has regular access to him uh, uh, in the White House, with maybe the partial exception of his daughter, uh, who's the de facto first lady of Trump. And, uh, and the other exception is uh, maybe Jared Kushner. We don't know. Nobody really knows what Jared Kushner thinks. He, um, we're not even sure Jared Kushner is actually a, uh, a human being. Um, I'm pretty sure uh, he's a Russian I, bot, actually. I, 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 I'm starting to wonder. You know, and, and, and the, 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 sort of the, the sort of laughably loyal uh, um, uh, commun- and now the communication director, uh, really a ludicrous character named Hope Hicks, who's responsible for... Uh, for feeding nice media stories to Trump every day, she delivers nice, you know. She, it, you know, it, it's just it's just madness. But Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of, of State, uh, John Kelly, his, uh, you know, his 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 latest and current Chief of Staff, uh, 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 just numerous individuals uh, uh, tell this guy, Michael Wolf, who just amazingly. This is this is a testament to the incompetence in the Trump administration that this guy Wolf just gets to sit as a fly on the wall in and around the White House for nine months and just document all this stuff. He interviews more than two hundred people and you know, almost to a person. They go, "This guy's just a child." One of his deputy chiefs of Karen Walsh, and I'm forgetting her name. One of the deputy chiefs of staff reports he can't read anything. He can't get past a paragraph. <laughs> Someone, one of his aides, tried to go in and brief him on the Constitution, and reports that he couldn't get he couldn't get past talking about the Fourth Amendment to Trump before Trump started falling asleep. <laughs> one of the things that um, comes out of the book um, 
that's 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 really clear as day. You you really leave it. And Bannon says this. Bannon, who interestingly is sinister and evil and vile, but not stupid. That's the funny thing. The way he comes for up in this book. He's pretty intelligent. He's like one of the few people in the administration that's actually read a few books. And he actually has this weird way of thinking about class and the working class and all in this very noxious kind of way. But Bannon says this. He says this, this White House, this first family, uh, um, and particularly this president, are not intelligent enough to have engaged in any kind of sophisticated conspiracy. I mean, these are the attention span. Because of the attention span. You know, this is like a, a 70-something-year-old toddler. You know, who literally wakes up in the morning and watches watches uh, Fox and Friends. You you can literally now, you you can watch Fox and Friends, and then keep your keep your computer open to Trump's Twitter feed, and watch him just fume off like a little Twitter baby, to in, in real time to the things he's seeing on TV. So he's got this sort of this grown up bad grandpa who who. Um, who, who has to be managed like a small child and who has temper tantrums and has to hear nice things about himself or else he just goes into a funk, you know, and, and is mean to everybody, like, like, a, like, a, like a tantruming toddler, you know, and uh, there's an attention span for anything as complicated as, a, uh, as an actual conspiracy. And you sort of get the sense that, uh, if anything, um, the, the, book, the book, if anything, is, is, is an argument for the removal of Trump on 25th Amendment grounds, which is just absolute total incompetence. You know, that he's just, that he's just too stupid for the job. I mean, uh, to tell us to call him a fucking moron. And he sort of, it's just sort of a disbelief that as you read this, as you go through this, and, 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 and listen to all these accounts of just how phenomenally stupid he is and what a, what a dysfunctional circus the White House is with Trump did. But, you know, the reason I, I let off the question the way that I did, Paul, uh, you know, about Trump being as stupid as he is, is not because, you know, I think it's fun to talk about, you know, the, how dumb the president is, is that it's exceedingly dangerous. Uh, Trump, oh, yeah. the, 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 what you get from the book is the sense that, you know, this is a man who is not just stupid and a buffoon, but somebody who genuinely thinks that he isn't, which is so much more dangerous than somebody who knows that they're not terribly intelligent, you know, and one oh, of... Oh, I think that's... I, I, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just was going to say that I think that that is one of the aspects of all of this that really I find particularly troubling, that you have somebody in the White House who courts all of the worst elements in, in American society from the far right... Uh, you know, fascist types to the to the right wing militia types to Klansmen and everything all the way to the center of the Republican Party. Uh, Trump has a certain appeal to all of these different segments. And yet he's a fucking moron. And I just fear that the forces that he is able to play with without understanding the repercussions of that. This is like letting the genie out of the bottle. Yeah, this is sort of unprecedented. I, I don't know that we've ever had anything quite like this. Uh, I mean, we've had some really bad and stupid presidents. And George W. Bush, you know, uh, appears to have actually thought that God told him. And, you know, the French, one of the former French prime ministers reported this from a personal conversation, that, that, that God had told him to invade Mesopotamia, I guess to, to avenge his, his, his father or something like that against Saddam. 
I'm saying Ronald Reagan was probably in uh, the latter stages of, uh, or in some stage of Alzheimer's during his last few years in the White House. I mean, we've had ridiculously sort of out of it presidents, but they have had the common sense to surround themselves by ruling class operatives who know better than them. I think W sort of understood that, that, that uh, you know, Dick Cheney and, uh, and some of his other handlers uh, 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 were sort of the adults in the room at the end of the day, but this guy doesn't get that. He, he honestly believes uh, that he's the smartest guy in the room every time he walks into it. And, that, and that's, um, that's a very strange and, and, and um, unusual and, and bizarre situation. It has to do with malignant narcissism. It has to do with sort of off-the-charts. I mean, Trump, my understanding from psychologists is that Trump, as a public personality, has been sort of a, a, a case study of just completely out-of-control narcissism as a, as a personality disorder for many years. The people, the psychologists have been studying him for many years. Never imagined someone like this would actually make it to the White House. You know, it's an interesting statement about the merging of our uh, so-called entertainment culture, our reality television culture, and our, and our political culture that occurred in 2015. Hey, Paul, I, I just want to... I'm sorry. I just I, I, since we're going to come up to the break here relatively soon, I, I want to throw this out here to kind of build on what you're saying. And then I want to let you go, you know, in whatever direction you want. Look, at, just as an example of this, you know, combination of stupidity and danger that I'm talking about. You have a you have a, a, a massacre at a high school in Florida. And a week later, the country is debating whether or not teachers should be packing heat. Because Trump said it. And, and, and this is the kind of you know, crossover from stupidity to danger that I'm talking about that, that we would literally be having this conversation as a country is just it's, – it's mind-boggling to me. And that is – I hate to minimize something so, so big, but that's not even the biggest of our concerns when it comes to Trump's stupidity bleeding over into absolute lunacy for the country. I mean – Look at the words that he uses when talking about North Korea. Look at what he says when talking about, uh, you know, Latin America and Venezuela and all of these other places. It it strikes me as not simply imperialism kind of unchained. It strikes me as like if you were to combine all of the most decadent kings and horrifically stupid rulers that you read about in European history classes, roll them together with like a, a, a five-year-old. That would be Trump. Yeah, it does seem sort of symptomatic of an empire in its latter stages sometimes. I mean, this is sort of, this is Caligula. I mean, this is, this is a level of, of intellectual and moral degeneracy that on, on a scale that I don't think any, anyone ever uh, matched. You know, this is sort of the culture of, uh, of reality television. It's the culture of the of Maury Povich and the Jerry Springer show. Uh, sort of seizing sort of outward power and becoming this daily media spectacle. And you could watch CNN and just watch the commentators just swing on this thing you were just talking about. It's just insane. I mean, Trump didn't invent that. The NRA people have been saying that for a long time. Everybody should be armed, including teachers. But to hear, the, to hear Trump say it, and, and, and you see these CNN anchors just sort of, sh- and commentators just sort of shaking their heads in, in, in disbelief. I mean, uh, um, I mean, the, the fire and fury comments that, that Wolf uses for the title of his books about North Korea are, are just madness. I mean, sort of beyond the rhetoric of Kim Jong-un himself. 
You know, I mean, uh, you know, the, the uh, who will tame the dotard? You know, in in, in the White House, to use Kim Kim Jong Un's word, it's it's just it's just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, you know, another thing that comes out in the book, by the way, I, you said you're coming to the break, is that they have no Trump has no expectation, and and almost nobody in his campaign, except Bannon, crazy Bannon, who's considered a lunatic because he thinks they might win, they completely expect to fail and be defeated by, by Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. And they are absolutely gobsmacked at the news that they have won. I almost can't believe it, which I didn't know. You know, I, 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 I actually thought that on election night when he came out for that, uh, you know, acceptance speech or, you know, wherever, at whatever hotel they were at. And he he came out looking almost ashen, you know, like like he couldn't, you know, he couldn't fathom what had happened. But, you know. The fact of the matter is he sits in the White House and he has a tremendous amount of power. And we all, I think, rightly worry about what the implications of that are. So we're going to go to break, Paul. Uh, When we come back, I want to return to the Russia issue, but not so much talking about Russia. I want to talk a little bit about some comments that we recently heard from Bernie Sanders in regard to Russia and, uh, you know, what significance or relevance we might be able to kind of glean from Bernie's comments. I also want to talk a little bit about a piece that you published recently about the end of U.S. hegemony and what that actually means both for the United States and for the world, and if that's even really what we're witnessing right now. And of course, I also want to talk a little bit more about Trump and Trump's chances in 2020 and uh, a whole lot more with Paul Street. You're listening to Counter Punch Radio. We'll be right back.
back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Paul Street. Uh, definitely follow Paul's work. It's in Counterpunch regularly. You can also find his column regularly in Truth Dig. Uh, let's see where else. Common Dreams picks up your stuff. I know quite often. A whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of other outlets. Uh, Paul, where should people go? Uh, you know, for sort of the aggregate of your work. What's your website? Oh, PaulStreet.org. Yeah. Paul um, PaulStreet.org. PaulStreet.org, yeah, www.paulstreet.org. I try and uh, get most of the pieces I publish up on the website within a um, week or so, if not sooner. Get all your go to PaulStreet.org for all your Paul Street needs. Okay, uh, let's turn to uh, what I was teasing a little bit before the break. There, Bernie Sanders had some pretty interesting comments recently, and it's been floating around on social media and uh, some, uh, you know, some 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 fiery rhetoric on both sides of the issue. Um, Bernie talked a bit about Russia and Russia's quote-unquote interference, and I really object to the use of the word interference and meddling because it sort of implies that, you know, U.S. uh, elections are some kind of sacred cow when in fact it's a a, a shit heap of epic proportions. But be that as it may, Bernie made these comments, and I want to get your read of, first of all, what he said and uh, if it's, you know, either correct or important. And most importantly, Paul, I want to get your analysis of why you think he said that. I mean, is this Bernie setting himself up for a run in 2020? Is this Bernie simply bending the knee to the Clinton neoliberal Democratic wing even further? How do you read Bernie's comments? Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about the first one you just said. It does sound a little bit like uh, <clears throat> someone who's doing that, you know. Um, um, I, I, the way I wrote it up, and I hadn't thought about that, is that uh, to me it sounded very much like more sheepdoggery. I mean, I, you know, it, it, if, if Bernie was the leftist that some of his supporters seemed to want to believe he was, and I, like a number of people at Counterpunch, are very skeptical about that and was sort of arguing all along that he was an empire man and he was a company man and he was a party man. In fact, that Bernie had really been a Democratic Party, sort of underground Democratic Party company man, going all the way back to the mid to early 1990s. Um, you know, um, that that if, if he was the leftist that, uh, uh, or the real serious, genuine progressive that a lot of folks... <laughs> wanted to believe he was, and a lot of, and I caught a lot of help from people on the left for questioning that narrative about the great Bernie Sanders. It seems to me he'd be, he'd be saying, hey, uh, quit blaming Russia. Uh, uh, you did this to yourself. Uh, we have to confront the issue of plutocracy and inequality in this country, and we shouldn't be engaging in neo-McCarthyite uh, rhetoric, which seems to think that conflict and dissent and, and and protest within this country is an outcome of outside interference. You'd think that's what he'd be saying, but no, he sort of really sounds on board uh, um, with this notion that uh, Russia did this. And, uh, and, and, and the language is really fascinating. What Sanders said is that, you know, the, the Russians, after, the, uh, after, the, um, after Hillary got the nomination, they flocked to the Bernie Sanders Facebook website, website and said, you have to understand that Hillary Clinton is a, is a murderer. She's terrible. And he says they said horrible, horrible things about Hillary 
Clinton in order to undermine American democracy. Well, Bernie said some horrible things, some justifiably horrible things about Hillary Clinton during the election, like that she was a, a sort of corporate plutocratic tool of Wall Street. He sort of implied that. Well, he was he was he was right about that. He didn't say much about her being an imperialist because that really wasn't his thing. Because he kind of was too. He gave her some crap about having voted for the invasion of Iraq and and all of that. Um, you know, and 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 the, the implication that for having a critical uh, thinking something bad and horrible and saying mean things about Hillary Clinton, that you that that couldn't happen unless the Russians told you to think them and do them. I, I find that very dangerous, and it sounds kind of neo McCarthyite and creepy. And neo McCarthyism uh, is going to undermine uh, um, uh, any chances of progressives taking over the Democratic Party, which they probably need to do if they want to stay and be a viable force in American political life. So if he's trying to, um, you know, position himself for the uh, for the election, now that's that's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about it that well, way, but sort of at the same time, he's, he's undermining his own, his own tendency within the Democratic Party, it seems to me. See, the, and, 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 and Paul, that is, I think, the really interesting angle in all of this, because I actually disagree with you in the idea that him making this statement is him undermining himself. I think that what Bernie is doing is making a very clear calculation that the reason he was not able to get the nomination of the Democratic Party is because the small clique that controls the Democratic Party saw Bernie as not on board. And so what Bernie is doing now is saying, wait a second, I'm the only person with a national profile in the Democratic Party, and I have been on board. I've been talking about Russia. I took the lead on the issue more so than all of these other people. Where was where was Oprah when, when the Russia Gate was happening? Where was, you know, fill in the blank? Where was Joe Kennedy or whoever else? What other other, you know, corpse? The Joe Biden, for Christ's sake, forget it. You know what I mean? You see a field of potential Democratic contenders that are not going to be able to both win over a progressive base and also the liberal establishment. I think that Bernie's making a calculation that the progressives got nowhere else to go. And even if they're upset with him about the things he said about Russia, they're still going to vote for Bernie because Bernie is, you know, going to undo what should have happened in, in 2016, right? Right that wrong, you know, the sin against the progressive uh, progressives in America, that Bernie in 2020 is a way of, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, he's an antidote to the poison that we've had to swallow these last four years. And hey, look, Bernie played ball. So why wouldn't the big time Democrats, uh, you know, bankroll? the billionaires and so forth, why wouldn't they support Bernie if Bernie comes out as the only one who's able to beat Trump? I think that Bernie's calculation here is basically he doesn't need to play to his base anymore. He's captured his base. He needs to play to the center of the Democratic Party, and that's what he's doing with Russia. You know, that's a plausible hypothesis, and that, that, that may well uh, be borne out. Uh, it's just, it's, it's sort of jarring to hear him talking about Russia undermining American democracy after a campaign in which he, uh, you know, said repeatedly that uh, we have this abject plutocracy, you know, in which the billionaire class gets everything it, it seems to want. He didn't seem to have, and he was right. I mean, this was, this was the strongest part of the Bernie campaign, with this, this ongoing uh, critique of the control not only of the wealth, but of the power in this country by what he called the billionaire 
class, you know, and he'd go around and draw these huge crowds pointing out that the top tenth of the upper one percent owns more wealth than the bottom of the ninety percent. And they also own a significant number of the politicians. But if you're saying that uh, he's got that base that believes that on board and needs to pivot uh, uh, in order to secure some of the rest of the Democratic base and perhaps some of the elite support, maybe that's going on. I wouldn't rule that out at all. Look, Bernie, all, all... I'm so sort of charred, charred by the, uh, you know, the, the disconnect between the, the Neil McCarthy sounding kind of rhetoric. Maybe it's a sort of uh, a, a smooth tactical move the way you're talking about it, on one hand and his sort of populist campaign persona in 2016. You know, I happen to believe that Bernie genuinely holds a lot of the ideas that he's, you know, that he espouses about labor and about economic rights and all of these things. I don't, I don't, he doesn't strike me as disingenuous on any of those things. I think he's very, he's very disingenuous when it comes to foreign policy, questions of empire and so forth. But I think that Bernie is realizing now that what hampered him wasn't the blind spot for imperialism. I mean, hampered in terms of potentially winning the nomination. What hampered him was his inability to capture the neoliberals, his inability to capture those who really make the Democratic Party. And I think that he's understood, and he's right, obviously, that Russia has now become the central issue for the ruling, uh, you know, the steering committee of the Democratic Party. And so Bernie is coming along and saying, I'm the guy. It's me this time. I could see a Bernie bumper sticker. All it would need to say, Bernie 2020, this time we win. That's it. Well, you know, I, I didn't. I didn't think his his campaign chances were undermined by the contradiction between his social democratic policy agenda and his sort of commitment to the American Empire project. I just thought that the the ability to to, to that there was a, a, a some sort of underlying Dr. Kingian conflict between the two agendas, right? Between the Pentagon system and the Pentagon budget on one hand, and pushing for social democracy. Um, and a Scandinavian type of welfare state, on the other hand, you sort of have to choose at a certain point. But, like, you know, you, it, you know I can see it. I, I suspect that, uh, that it's entirely possible that that's what's going on with Sanders. I, I, I do think that it turns out that the form of single payer, that he's that his own particular bill, comes up somewhat short of real single payer uh, 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 on the model of the House bill. And that's sort of raised some questions to me about how progressive he really is. But but he might be playing that game that you're talking about. It's entirely possible. Look, the bottom line is Bernie was pretty close. Bernie was pretty close. You know what I mean? He was able to challenge what amounted to a rigged game, you know, in the Democratic in the and Democratic Party. And that's a remarkable Party. development, in and that's a remarkable development in, Amer- in, in political history. Twenty six exactly was a, was a was a non-establishment election. The, the the Wall Street candidates in both parties were probably doomed in advance. So I do still think that Hillary made some practical just absurd campaign failures that that, that, that that if she hadn't, she probably could have squeaked through. But in many ways, 2016, and I think this has to do with the Great Recession and just the, the widening chasm of inequality, which has alienated vast segments of the American population, including, by the way, 40% of the population, U.S. population, that didn't vote in the election at all, right? That's, the, 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 that's a bigger total than voted for either of the major party candidates. Um, it, was, it was a non-establishment election. And, and the party structure held against the outsider actual populist on the Democratic side, and the party structure was unable to hold against the outsider 
billionaire sort of faux populist, right-wing white nationalist reactionary populist. That, that Republican Party structure was amazingly enough unable to hold, and the Republican primaries were like this uh, bizarre uh, uh, Agatha Christie mystery novel where just one after another the candidates were just murdered, you know, low energy Jeb, little Marco, Kasich, you know, they all went down and standing at the end of it of this was this uh, bizarre, wacky, pseudo-populist, supposedly authentic, vicious, mean, alienated, angry, white guy being Donald Trump who, you know, was telling people they were being screwed by NAFTA and, and, and claiming he was going to bring back the golden age of American manufacturing and restore the heartland, you know, to its central place in American life. It's really an extraordinary development. The only, I think the only one that really necessarily really would have beat him was, was, was Bernie Sanders. And for all my left criticisms of Bernie throughout the campaign, I said, you know, if you get him through, if you get him past the, the corporate neoliberals and the DNC and get him on the ballot, I almost never vote Democratic, but I would Democratic. How, how could I not have in the 2016 election? And I think he would have prevailed. I happen to agree with you there. And I think that um, one thing I will say, just as a you know sort of side note to what you were saying there, Paul, was that 2016 was an anti-establishment election, no doubt. Okay. The idea that 2020 will also be an anti-establishment election, I'm not buying. Because I think that rather 2020 will be understood as the redo. This will be the I don't even care if you run, uh, you know, uh, a cardboard cutout, a scarecrow, uh, you know, a pile of, you know, dog vomit, whatever it is. It's just it's not Trump. And I think Bernie understands that. And that's why I think Bernie is making a very cynical, though perhaps smart calculation in all of this, that it's not going to be Bernie's outsider status. It's not going to be a new program, a breath of fresh air or any of this other stuff. It's going to be who's the one to take down Trump. And I think that Bernie recognizes, and I mean, I I don't want to keep saying the same thing, but I think that Bernie recognizes that the only way that he's going to be able to actually make that appeal to the American public broadly is by getting those who control the Democratic Party on board. And I think that that's what he's doing. Now, I want to switch a little bit, Paul, in the time we have remaining here, uh, just, just to talk a little bit about Trump before we get into some broader issues about imperialism and U.S. empire and hegemony. You know, one of the things that is so fascinating about Trump is that, and it it just reminds me of that comment he made about how he can go out on Fifth Avenue, shoot somebody in the head, and and nothing would happen to him, right? That, That there is a certain feeling that no matter the scandals, no matter the stupidity, no matter just one thing after another after another, seemingly every day, new new scandal around the Trump administration. And yet he holds pretty steady with his base, you know, somewhere between 32 and 40 percent, depending on which polls you're looking at, still cling to Trump and still see Trump not only as their president, but they see Trump as a victim. He's a victim of all of these forces, the fake news and the, the corporate media and all of these different things. He's a victim. They're not allowing him to do what he's supposed to do. And they've held on to him no matter the stupidity, no matter the betrayals, right? He said he was going to build a wall. That's gone. He said he was going to not, you know, fight any more wars in the Middle East. That's gone, right? All of these, all of these promises that have, you know, evaporated like so much pond water, you know, and yet I think the biggest mistake, the biggest factor, and we're witnessing it, I think right now, 
is if Trump really does attempt to respond to the issue of gun violence, if Trump even suggests very minor restrictions and very minor legislation and comes out in support of that, I think that is the single most dangerous thing he could do that would undeniably alienate so much of his base. All of those lunatics that came out and voted for him in droves, I think a lot of them stay home if he does that. Yeah, he does have this kind of um, incredibly small, historically small, and yet amazingly durable hardcore 35 to 39% support base, very heartland, very white, very anti-immigrant, very uh, uh, very uh, uh, anti-professional class, very anti-cosmopolitan elite uh, liberal America. Um, And and it seems to be held together, among other things, uh, by region, uh, certainly by race, very heavily by native identity, uh, by a kind of nationalist uh, fed upness with foreigners, so to speak, and it's kind of obsession with people from outside the country, and held together by this kind of um, self-referential uh, uh, right-wing media ecosphere, which didn't exist in the time of Nixon. I mean, I'm, I'm, I wonder if Nixon would have tried to hang on despite everything against him, if he had Fox News and Breitbart and the right-wing talk media universe, you know, there to sort of uh, uh, deny anything that comes out bad about him and just, just sort of say that two plus two equals five and love is hate and, you know, and, and, and war is peace because Big Brother, you know, Sean Hannity and, and Big Brother Rush Limbaugh and Big Brother Steve Bannon say so. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very tenuous and precarious uh, uh, um, uh, number to have, 35 to 39%, and it can't go much below that. It's enough because of the gerrymandered Congress and because of the sort of the insanely upper unrepresented Senate system and because of the awfulness and the dismalness and the neoliberalism of the Democrats who really don't poll much better than the Republicans. They poll better than the Republicans, but not, not by very much. You know, it, it, even 35 to 39 percent is, you know, is able to continue on because of those, those sort of external factors, but it can't go much below that. I mean, 35 to 39 percent can, I think, keep him immune from impeachment and removal. It's going to be very tricky for your re-election. I don't know how much guns, you know, in the total universe of issues that matter to the white nationalist heartland populace. You know, there's a number of them. Abortion, uh, uh, religion, uh, 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 immigration is huge. Uh, and, and guns are also part of that mix. And you seem to be having guns as very being heavily, very heavily weighted. And I, su- I suspect you're, um, you're somewhat right about that. And he has been compelled by this remarkable political moment after the Florida high school shooting, which is a little different. It's a different. We've had, you know, we've had Las Vegas mass shooting. We've in, you know, in the in the last decade, we've had Sandy Hook. Uh, we've had a couple other mass shootings. I'm not remembering right now. This one's a little different. It's a little distinctive. It has a lot to do with the kids in Florida. 
that these weren't these weren't grade school kids. These were high school kids, and a, and a bunch of them, a cadre of them, are very eloquent and and interesting and wonderful high school kids who've gone on the campaign trail on this issue and got media attention, and they become influencers in the media political universe. And I think uh, Ivanka has sort of worked Donald and made him talk to the you know to, to pay some attention. To this and also pay attention to the fact that 70 percent if it's not more now of the population particularly after this shooting wants some kind of significant gun control trump is um has called for uh you know it seems to be endorsing sort of modest you know in themselves inadequate but but welcome and modest beginning gun control moves like he'd like to see that the age for being able to purchase assault rifles well, from 1821, he thinks he'd like to see Congress uh, get rid of uh, the, the uh, bump stock things that, you know, turn these weapons, assault weapons, into machine gun types of weapons. And he looks like he's for more comprehensive background checks. And all of that's already just just those little modest steps, these things he said, is enough to have led the National Rifle Association, which is a fascist organization as far as I'm concerned. Uh, to critically distance themselves from him, and they are a very powerful, influential part of the uh, of the whole right wing infrastructure in this country. And uh, that takes him down from 35 percent to 30 percent, and that down, he's cooked. He doesn't have a chance. He can't go. He can't below. He can't go below those numbers. No, you know, no amount of dismalness on the part of the Democrats uh, or lo- or low turnout in the 2020 election can save him. Then I think that really could do him in. Well, I, I, I definitely think it would do him in because, look, uh, and maybe this is something that I didn't fully appreciate until I moved out of New York City, but um, guns are something almost sacred uh, in this country when it comes to, you know, that segment of the population that is really, you know, uh, not only gun owners, because I think there are many different types of people who are gun owners, but that that segment of gun owners that is, you know, gung-ho, as it were, you know, really about that. Um, you see, this is, a, this is a different issue, Paul. This is not the wall. This is not, uh, you know, wars in Iraq. This is not, you know, a, these even tax reform or Obamacare or whatever. These are all these are all issues that, you know, were, were very critical to Trump and were very uh, essential uh, in his campaign. But they're not precious possessions. Guns are like a precious possession for a lot of these people. They're something that's almost an extension of themselves, uh, you know, an, uh, an illustration of who you are as a man, as a white man, as an American, a red-blooded American man with his guns. You see what I'm saying here? That that guns is oh, yeah. emotionally, lo- uh, you know, pun intended, I suppose, an emotionally loaded issue. When he crosses that line, th- that might very well be the betrayal that he cannot come back from. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because I just happened to have been in a sporting goods store in the mall in Iowa City, and actually I was looking for brand-new basketball because uh, I can't get basketballs anymore at the uh, local gyms around here. They're all taken already. Some of them are going shopping. And I realized that, that there was a whole gun section on the same floor that I was already on. It's at Chilton's and at the mall at Coralville, Iowa. And I sort of just waded into it and sort of listened to these guys. And it was just a mass of, of, of white males. I don't think there was anybody other than a white male in there. 
just talking lovingly about this 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 outlay of of incredibly lethal you know, hardware and talking knowledgeably about them and holding these guns lovingly. You're absolutely right. Is a really 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 big deal. What what amazes me though is that um you know, it's part of the, the America's concept of itself as a gunfighter nation, really going back to the beginning of this country. Um, and it's it's sort of intimately related back to a kind of uh, uh, individual, possessive individualist, neoliberal, uh, autonomous, capitalist worldview too. It's, it's it's the guns are about more than guns. You're absolutely right. They're about a whole sort of proprietary identity of oneself and one's control over one's own household and, and community. And one's a lot of these guys are hunters, and they're obviously we're talking about shooting deer. Hunting, you know, Paul, which leads me to this question: assault rifles and deer hunting. How do how do they they get that mixed up? It's just amazing. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump in there, but you said a word. Sure. You, you used a word that I think is critical in all of this, and it's you know, and I'm going to toot my own horn just a tiny bit. You know. I've been since Trump was elected, I've been harping on the issue of white identity and that white identity is really what drives this entire phenomenon of Trump. And I think that and and you just said identity with respect to gun ownership. And I think you're absolutely right that it is uh, for that segment of uh, the population. It is absolutely at the core of their very identity. None of these other issues are guns are. It's what it's at the center of American history of, you know, American patriotism of rugged individualism, manifest destiny and on and on and on. You know, and, and there's a lot of conversation about you know, the origins of the Second Amendment. I know uh, Roxanne uh, Dunbar-Ortiz has written a wonderful book about that, although I, I don't want to give a judgment about it because I haven't read it. But from what I understand, it's an excellent book. Uh, you know, we, we talked a lot about, uh, you know, on the left about the history of the Second Amendment and what that really means and so forth. But all of that is somewhat, you know, academic and irrelevant when you're talking about white male orientation towards guns and the white male orientation or orientation to Trump is very much mirrors that. So this really is kind of the sacred cow for Trump. And I don't know if he really understands how dangerous it is for his own political future. If he does that, I hope he doesn't understand that, frankly. Yeah, no. Well, I just say if you were in Iowa too, I just, just connection with pickup trucks too. (laughs) That, that hasn't emerged yet. I haven't heard anyone accuse liberals of, well, actually, that does come up a little bit around climate. And, um, you know, people, it's very important to people. They can drive around with their shotguns in the back of their pickup trucks. What I was going to say is it, it confuses me a little bit, though, that I'm not understanding, um, is how uh, how easy it is for people to be triggered even by the most modest calls for things like, let's get rid of bump stocks. Or let's increase some of the background checks. I mean, we're not even talking about an assault rifle ban anymore, which we used to have in this country up through the 1990s. Uh, you know, and and uh, gee, maybe let's uh, let's let's uh, boost the age of purchase of an assault rifle from 18 to 21. Nobody's talking about taking away people's abilities to wear camouflage and get out in the, in the Pennsylvania mountainside or in the uh, fields of Iowa and take down bucks and, and, and deer 
or, or even defend our own particular property with, uh, with, with you know, rapid fire. But, right? Paul, remember the states. And yet, yet Re- even the slightest hint of a rollback is instantly translated into an attempt to take back our rifles. I even was on the radio once with a guy who called up and said we liberals wanted to take away their fishing rods and reels. Remember, remember the states, though, Paul. Remember what states are really we're really talking about here. So I live in New York. Um, I know the gun the gun laws in New York. Uh, they're fairly strict. They're some of the strictest in the country. Uh, you know, the Safe Act, which was passed after the uh, massacre at uh, the at Sandy Hook. Uh, the Safe Act, which uh, limits, I I think it's twelve or thirteen rounds in a magazine, so you can't just sit and you know spray thirty bullets without having to reload your gun. You know, uh, there's a number of other restrictions and they're, they vary by counties and it's up to the sheriff and you have to have letters of recommendation and a background check and fingerprints and there's a whole there's a whole bureaucracy to trying to purchase uh, uh, well not trying to purchase the firearm only but trying to get licensed in order to be able to do so in New York right yeah. but New York is not really what we're talking about here because all those requirements are already in place. We're talking about those states that have almost no, if any, requirements of any kind. And all of those states, all of them, are red for Trump. Arizona, Florida, Arkansas... Uh, you know, Virginia and on and on and on, right? You could you could look at a number of. Well, actually, I don't know if Virginia is totally red for Trump, but you get my point that that Trump is alienating those states that carried him to the White House if he does this. Right. Well, Trump is 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 fascinating in some ways, and 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 one thing about Trump that in, in his ability as as a a, a sexually avaricious. Uh, Creation of of of, of godless, uh, materialistic New York City, and and also sort of of entertainment culture in Hollywood, and the sort of known sexual uh, predator uh, who's part of this very pampered casino, parasitic culture of, of you know of, of real estate, and yet he makes this kind of devil's bargain, so to speak, with these folks in red states around religion around guns, uh, around gender, and around white identity. But there's this tension uh, in, in, internally with Trump and internally with the Trump background and family, I think, in, in that regard. I, I think he may actually, being a product of New York, might not quite get all of that, right? He's, and he's probably not smart enough to get it. You know, if you know, Bannon would say, if he was still in there, that, he, that, that Bannon would claim he'd be educating about all these good old boys out there in red state America. But Bann- Bannon's gone. It'd be interesting to know how Bannon would be responding to this. You know, Bannon sort of thought of himself as sort of the translator for the white heartland working class in the Trump administration. And it's sort of possible that, that Trump doesn't quite get all that, what you're talking about, right? And this, this is where he could be vulnerable. I mean, let's hope he is vulnerable, right? Well, absolutely right. So in the time we have remaining, Paul, I want to talk a little bit about a piece that you had published in Truth Dig uh, last week. Uh, What was that? February 22nd, I believe it was. The title of the piece, The World Will Not Mourn the Decline of U.S. Hegemony. Uh, Truer words were never spoken, obviously. Uh, But I I just want to kind of pick apart a little bit what you're arguing in that piece, because I think that there's a lot there. So can you just give us a little bit of an overview of what exactly exactly your argument is well actually let me rephrase that question number 1 is us hegemony in decline entirely 
is this merely a symptom of a much, 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 much longer process of uh, decline of hegemony? And then secondly, uh, is, is there actually anything in its place, emerging in its place? Because I don't necessarily believe that, you know, an empire of global proportions like that of the United States and its various vassal countries simply declines without something else rising to take its place. And it's a really interesting question because in recent years I have kind of argued that point that we saw the emergence of Russia and China and the BRICS and you know some of these non, non-Western uh, countries that were unwilling to align with the United States that were aligning with those forces and here we are in 2018 and all of this strife in the United States. And I think the position of those non-Western countries is far weaker than it was even f- three, four years ago. So I guess there's sort of, in my mind, a bit of a paradox- paradoxical kind of relationship between a hegemony for the United States in decline and yet a lack of ascendance of a countervailing force. Well, just to be clear, my article, as I think you know, didn't actually go into all of that. It, it just sort of uh, – actually, that wasn't even my title, to be honest with you. But the um, – it, it, it's – I start off with these kind of um, uh, 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 sorrowful warnings about how supposedly U.S. empire, uh, U.S. global influence is in decline under Trump. And I've got a guy from uh, – well, I've got uh, a guy from um, Time magazine, and, of course, I've got Elliot Cohen. I've got leading neoconservatives, you know, bemoaning this and 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 saying what a horrible, absolute, complete nightmare it will be to have a world without U.S. leadership. And what I did in the in the piece was go through the reality of what the American era really was since 1945. And so, the book I've already been I mean, the book the essay I've already been told by uh, a, a guy who teaches post World War II American history should he already assigned it because it's a I think a useful compendium of just the abject horrors. Uh, of 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 the American Empire, really from 1945 on, and I won't go into all the details of that. And it's something you and your listeners probably, anybody who's a counterpunch reader, already knows. Well, and that's and and that's just kind of my point here, Paul, is that I I didn't yeah. want to run through a bullet point list of every right, reason right, right. why America sucks. Uh, you know, right, right. Go, so yeah, I mean, I, I do want to talk about well, U.S. hegemony. Thing, you know, this, 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 so so there's, there's there's no mystery about the fact that the, that the world is not necessarily going to bemoan that. But you raise some really interesting questions. Uh, you know whether it's actually whether it's actually in decline. I mean, certainly nobody is remotely in position, no other power, to 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 to, to fill anything close to the vacuum that, that would that, that would that would follow in the wake of American decline uh, anytime soon. I mean, the closest anyone can imagine, of course, is China, which has become this phenomenal economic hegemon. And was sort of just waiting, sort of quietly and deliberately planning for uh, for for its emergence to sort of the next economic superpower, and perhaps hope, you know hoping to build a military superpower and already moving to do that in a cyberspace superpower and all of that. Uh, I can't imagine and that 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 emerging before 2050 or thereabouts. That seems to be still very following this. There does seem to be a sense in a lot of the, the geopolitical literature. About a world that's becoming more economically multipolar, uh, less focused on the United States, but but nobody is remotely close yet uh, to the kind of strength and the power that the United States has. I mean, I think that, that that's uh, 
that's absolutely right. Well, and and that's really what I'm getting at uh, is that what we're witnessing, I think, is, well, just this is, of course, my opinion, the early stages of something, whatever we want to call that. Because I think that there's a lot of people, both on the left and the right, who have a very flawed notion of what the decline of U.S. hegemony means. I think that there are some people that literally believe that there would be some kind of an overnight collapse in the United States, right? That it would be, you know, akin to uh, what Russia saw, you know, in 1991 to 1995 or something like this. You know, the real unraveling, seemingly overnight of the, you know, the fabric of society and of the economic system and so forth, and that it would be, you know, transformative, uh, you know, in a negative way. And I think that that's just simply wrong. I, I, I just don't see that happening. And I don't see any of the conditions that would be necessary for that to happen. I think that rather, you know, and you kind of pointed to some of this a little earlier, Paul, in talking about how, you know, uh, the, the, the Trump era seems, you know, like the kind of empire in decline phase. And it certainly does seem that way. At the same time, I'm also wondering whether the kind of hegemony that the United States has exerted since 1945, and especially since 1991... I think that maybe that is what's going away, not hegemony for the United States in total, but rather the United States' ability to control things with economic power, the United States' ability to control things with technological power and technological innovations and capital resources and all of these things. I think that is what is now being challenged. And so what that means is, in my view, a much more dangerous world, one in which the United States is much more heavily reliant on hard power. Power, on military power, on war making, and on warmongering than it is on, you know, propaganda and soft power and NGOs and economic investment and foreign aid and all of these other things. And that transition towards a more hard power really frightens me. Well, you see, and this goes back to the to the title of the essay, then, right? And it's sort of a caveat. And, if, and, it, and like I said, it actually wasn't my title. And if I had more word count in that essay, the caveat would be, or maybe, or, or maybe the world will mourn the decline of American power because that decline is profoundly dangerous, right? There is this imbalance between the empire's economic strength on one hand, which is which just fades as it has to, because that's how the world system operates. No one particular nation ever continues to control as much capital, right, and as much technology and, 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 and as much market power as the United States did at the end of World War II. That just doesn't happen. Britain didn't keep it. And no other, no other great power has kept it. It always tends to filter away. But it still clings to this, 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 this um, technological military superpower in this global reach um, and, and the, that kind of superiority. And when that's all it can depend on, that sort of raises a lot of questions of whether it's going to go down without a final great cataclysm. And a lot of the rhetoric around Korea is very frightening uh, in, in that regard, right? That's sort of uh, that's the that's the main uh, that's the main arm of hegemony left anymore. In some ways, uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was a critical moment in the decline of American hegemony. It's a critical moment uh, in 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 in, in um, uh, in, in global hatred and fear of the United States. In many ways, that invasion of Iraq in 03 can be understood as kind of an attempt to prop up Americans' uh, inevitably fading economic hegemony by sort of putting a military boot down 
uh, on the Middle Eastern oil spigot, right? And it fails spectacularly in all kinds of ways. And, of course, it kills a million-plus Iraqis uh, in the process. Now, you know, whether whether Trump is going to be a agent of declining American uh, uh, global uh, uh, influence on the scale of that fiasco uh, remains to be seen. He certainly is a laughing stock around the world. And I, I can't talk to anybody anywhere else in the world right now without almost a sense of embarrassment. Um, you know, every, everyone's just like, what, what happened to you people? How, how is this, this ass clown, this, 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 this malignant, childish, narcissistic moron, uh, how, how, how does he happen to be helping hold the most powerful position in the world right now? It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's incredible. That's right. Absolutely. Now, uh, just to close up uh, our conversation, um, I think you were on the show. Uh, let me think. I think you were the first guest or maybe the second guest after the election. Uh, it would have been, you know, within a couple of days because I did like four episodes around the election. Uh, and I believe it was in that conversation where I taught where I talked to, uh, with you about what I thought was the real danger of Trump, and I didn't really necessarily, you know, and obviously there are many, but I didn't think that Trump's real danger was in, you know, starting a world war or even in expanding, you know, U.S. military engagement through Middle East, which it already is all over that region, or North Korea or anything. I thought that the real danger was that Trump would end up inevitably betraying the far-right base that he cultivated, and that that betrayal would radicalize the far-right even further to the right. And under the conditions that we're talking about, particularly the conditions of declining U.S. power and U.S. power projection, and especially decline of U.S. Uh, image around the world and the self-image that Americans have of themselves, I think all of that is a recipe for radicalizing the fascist right or the far right or the ultra-conservatives or whatever you want to call them in this country. And and with all of the events that have happened since that last conversation we had, Paul, I'm doubly convinced that we really need to be paying attention to what the far right is as it stands right now, because it's already morphed from what it was a year ago, where they were all cheerleaders for Trump. And now they're breaking apart and they're radicalizing further. And they're saying to themselves, you see, Trump was our false prophet. We haven't seen our real leader yet. And it's just a matter of time. There are a lot of people on the fascist right that are thinking that way. And my fear is that with all of this decline that we're talking about, including the decline of U.S. hegemony, that that is becoming ever more certain. And I don't see an analog on the left. And I don't see organization on the left that's going to be able to contend with that. And that worries me tremendously. Yeah, well, you know, I, I always sort of felt that the greatest danger posed by Trump was his uh, climate denial and his uh, absolutely ecocidal commitment to the greenhouse casting to death of life on the planet. And that's been borne out, too. I want to mention that because I just find it absolutely extraordinary how little attention the environmental question gets. In, in Absolutely. America. You're absolutely right. It's just, just mind-boggling because, because I'm not sure the environmental question, the, the climate change issue right now may well be the most important issue of our or any 
time, and that relates me to another thing that I and this came out of reading Wolf. I, I, I had this thought a little bit before, and then after I read Wolf's book, I really had it. So one of the great dangers of Trump, and one of the reasons I would love to see him go immediately, by any means necessary, and that would include a, a, a McDonald's-inflicted uh, stroke or heart attack, is as long as he's in there, it's just going to be a constant maddening distraction of whatever the latest tweet or the latest ridiculous comment was and it's going to suck up the news cycle and suck up attention so we can't talk about racism in this country anymore, we can't talk about the environment issue, which is probably the biggest issue of our any time, or anything else except Trump said this and Trump did that I have thought for some time that in a way we almost dodged a bullet with Trump because he's so childish and so self so obviously oafish and just ridiculous and narcissistic and venal he's really not capable of the kind of discipline and and ideological conviction um uh and 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 uh uh, uh he just the temperament of a real scary bona fide fascist you know like some people seem to be saying that you know this this was actually the coming of fascism right now. No, it's kind of a dry run for it. Well, I, that's right? exactly my point, Paul. That's exactly the not point. He's capable of channeling fascism. He's not. That's what Bannon. That's one of the things coming out of Wolf book is Bannon wants to write this guy, right? And thinks he might he might be the vehicle for a real right wing white nationalist takeover. And, and one thing that comes out of Wolf book is you kind of see Bannon kind of loses that. Bannon understands what an idiot he's doing. Bannon probably already knew that, but he realizes he can't use him anymore. And Bannon's talking about running, maybe, and thinking. He's been putting out feelers. Maybe he thinks he's the guy. And 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 so I mean I think you're I think you're right. There's still that danger of the of of the ever more the true believer. Right whose situation the yeah, true believer. There, we're waiting. We're, we're waiting for that, or not we, but they are waiting for that, and and it's gonna come eventually. The question is, what are gonna be the other forces and the other circumstances and the other conditions that uh, you know on the ground when that happens? And uh, you know that's been my concern, and I don't mean to you know be well, you know the, the the sky is falling all the time about that, and I agree with you. Climate change is the you know probably the biggest issue of all, um, but at the same time. I think that we need to be careful not to forget how history operates and that history operates, it, it, you know, it's not necessarily predictable, but there are certain trends and there are certain consistencies that you can find from one era to the next. And I think that uh, the conditions right now are such that uh, the, the far right is getting stronger and the left is not. And that's one of the things that really concerns me. And so when people poo-poo the issue of uh, fascist propaganda, poo-poo the issue of, you know, how the far-right base was cobbled together to support Trump, then they're missing, I think, the real story and certainly the political story for the next 25 years. Well, and they are armed, and they have influence above and beyond their um, their numbers uh, well, and, in part because of that, and, and in part because the rank-and-file military and the rank-and-file police, including the rank-and-file police in which is a militarized police, which might as well be a military component. Right? You want to galvanize. Uh, you want to galvanize a fascist movement in yeah. this country. There'll be no, nothing will do it faster than trying to take away their guns. Yeah. Right. 
but the police they might be in blue zones. But if you had a, if you had a if you had a red zone blue state civil war right now, I should get people asking me if we're going to have a civil war. It's like, well, only one side of it's armed, so I kind of doubt it. But even in the even in the blue zones, uh, it would appear the people that have a monopoly of violence, <laughs> the urban police, are are essentially lined up ideologically with the white nationalists and the uh, and, and the NRA. That's right, and that's that's a, nice, that's a nice thought. Yeah, and that's a great and that's a great point to end our conversation on. So uh, you know, that's very that's very reassuring, particularly late in the evening as I lay my head down to sleep with nightmares of orange beasts floating through my head. But oh, I guess it's time for us to start the left wing rifle rejuvenate the anarchist rifle clubs. Hey, I, I I follow the Socialist Rifle Association on Facebook, so there's that. Uh, but anyway, um, I want to thank you for coming on the show again, Paul, Paul street. He's awesome. Follow his work, paulstreet.org regularly in counterpunch and a whole bunch of other places. Uh, a lot more to, a lot more to come from counterpunch radio. I'm uh, trying to get guests together, trying to get this back on track. So please do join me again. Uh, hopefully every week and uh, any audio issues, I apologize, but I'm a slave to technology. Thank you all for listening to Counterpunch Radio once more, and I'll speak to you again real soon.